Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And if you are able, if you're willing, you may stand for this. Matthew chapter 9. I'm just giving you a chance to get unlimbered here. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 38. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no, no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thank you. You may be seated. All the way in Matthew's gospel, we have seen miracle after miracle after miracle after In Matthew chapter 4, preceding the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew chapter 4, they're even bringing people from Syria. They're bringing people from everywhere into Galilee, and Jesus is healing every sort of sick person, every sort of diseased person, every every demon-possessed person. All of these people are being delivered. Then we have this great Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you of something I've already spoken of. You look at Israel coming out of Egypt. They came into the wilderness. They came to Mount Sinai. And when they came to Mount Sinai, they had the people, they saw God come down. Fire fell on Mount Sinai. They saw angels surrounding the summit of Mount Sinai. A barrier, a line was put around the base of the mountain. Moses by himself was invited to the top of the mountain. Anyone, any Israeli who crossed that line was to be pierced with a dart or an arrow, a spear, 
Only Moses was allowed on the mountain to speak with God. And it was 40 days before he came down off that mountain with the tablets. And already the people were in rebellion and worshiping idols. And so he smashed the Ten Commandments. He was so irate. And there was a great judgment that took place. A great judgment that took place. Even today, if you go to where the real Mount Sinai is in the northwest part of Saudi Arabia, even today on the rocks surrounding Mount Sinai, there are etchings in the rocks of bulls and, cow and cows that were, and if you ask the Arab people who are there, the Bedouins who live there, where did these come from? If they trust you, they will say, oh, that's the Jews. That's the Jews. Jesus does all these miracles. The Jews had witnessed miracles. They, they, these are people that had all walked through the Red Sea. They had witnessed the, t the ten plagues in Egypt. They'd walked through the Red Sea. Then they'd seen Pharaoh's army drown behind them. They had, they had had all these provisions from God. And then what do they do at the first opportunity? They rebel against God. And Moses comes down off the mountain. And so what do we see? We see a reverse version of that in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Jesus does all these miracles, then he goes up on the mountain and he sits down. And the people come up. They are going up the mountain to meet with God. And we have the Sermon on the Mount. And then when Jesus comes down off from the mountain, he's met by the leper. He cleanses the leper. He's met by the centurion. I have a, my servant is at home in agony in bed. And Jesus offers to go to his home to cleanse. Oh, no, you don't need to do that. I know how authority works. You can just say the word and he will be healed. Jesus said the word and the man was healed. Then he goes into the home of Peter and heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then that night, the Sabbath being over, they bring to him all kinds of diseased and sick and demon-possessed people, and he heals them all. And so we see this happening. Jesus goes from one miracle to another miracle to another. They cross the sea and they go to a Gentile area, the Gennesaret. And he heals the two demon-possessed men, possessed by a legion of demons that are cast into the hogs, and they drown themselves in the sea. And then they come back, and Jesus is again in Capernaum. And he heals people, and heals people, and heals people. He forgives that he comes to Capernaum. They bring him the young man who's on the cot, and he says to the young man, not you're healed. He says, seeing his faith, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The Jewish leadership who were there, blasphemy, this man blasphemes. Oh, let me prove to you that that wasn't blasphemy. I just healed, I just forgave this man. Yes, you are correct. That is a task that only God can carry out. But to show you that I can do it Cast that only God can carry out, which tells you about what about me? 
I'm God. He turns to him, I will do a visible thing that only God can do. And he says to the young man, stand up, roll up your cot and take it home. And he does. And the people are amazed. Everybody is rejoicing except the Jewish leadership. And Jesus goes on from there and he goes to Matthew, the tax collectors. He calls Matthew to follow him. Then they're having a banquet in Matthew's house. And again, the Jewish leadership says to his disciples, look at that. Your master is sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't God do that? Doesn't God do that? And Jesus says to them, when the disciples bring him the word of what these guys are, he said, well, you pass the word back to them. Uh, Ask them if they have actually ever studied their Bible. These are the renowned theologians. (laughs) Have you ever studied your Bible? What does it say in Hosea? I love, I, thus says the Lord, love mercy and not sacrifice. By the way, he's going to quote that to them again later in Matthew's Gospel. And so the great theologians just got smacked in the snout and he goes on and he deals with the questions from John's the John the Baptist disciples and then he's called out he's still in the home of Peter and he's he gets this word here's Jairus the synagogue leader now he's not named here in Matthew's gospel but he's named in Luke's gospel and he comes my daughter at home just died But I know you can raise her from the dead. And so Jesus goes with him immediately. He's followed by his disciples. Excuse me, not Peter's house. He's still in Matthew's house at the party. And he goes. And on the way, the woman with the flow of blood that she'd had for 12 years touches the hem of his garment and is healed. And he turns and blesses her. And then he goes on and raises from the dead. This is the first event of Jesus raising a dead person. In the gospel accounts, he raises the synagogue official's daughter from the dead. And then he comes out. And immediately, as he leaves, and he's on his way back, probably to Peter's house, and he heals, as we looked at it last just where we just read about it, the two blind men are following immediately as he's leaving. And they're following him. You know, he just keeps going. These guys are following. They just keep following. And they're crying out to him while he's walking through the streets. They keep, and finally he goes into the house and they followed him into the house. Then he turns to them because they've been persistent. They've been, let me tell you something about prayer. And I, I wish this wasn't true, folks. I am so lazy. I want to just be able to utter a prayer once. No. God says, I want persistency. I want you to want it so bad that you will not stop until. Don't be afraid of displeasing me by demanding an answer. It was an event way back in Jewish history when the the prophet Elisha was on his deathbed. 
and the new king, just new anointed new king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, is doing the polite thing, even though he really doesn't have a relationship with God that's you know worthy. He goes to visit God's prophet who's on his deathbed, and Elisha says to the man, I want you to take a bundle of arrows, and here they are, and I want you to strike the ground with those arrows. And so the guy's, okay, and he gets down, bang, bang, bang. And Elisha gets just irate. If you had struck the ground six or seven or eight times hard, you would have had complete victory over all your enemies. Now you will not have that victory. You will only have half a victory. Because you didn't do the ground pounding, which is what our prayers are. These blind men pounded the ground. They pounded the pavement after Jesus all the way into the house, crying out to him, Cleanse our eyes, cleanse, give us sight, give us sight, give us fine. After they're in the house, he turns to them. Do you believe that I can heal your blindness? Yes, Lord. And so he does it. He touches their eyes. They receive their sight. Then he says, now, go out. Do not spread this around. I don't want people coming to me just for physical healing. I want them coming to me for what the physical healing of especially their blindness represents. I want them coming to me for truth. Not just to solve an immediate problem, but their eternal problems. And then immediately they bring into to him the man who is demon-possessed, and because of the possession of that demon, he is unable to speak. And Jesus casts out the demon, the man can immediately speak. And what does it say? And when the demon was cast out and the, and the mute spoke, the multitude marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. They are looking at the evidence and they are agreeing with the evidence. They are embracing what the evidence says. But what about the Jewish leadership? They only see Jesus as a threat. They are the religious leaders, but God is a threat to them. How, you know, on the superficially we say, how weird is that? But folks, <laughs> I tell you what, that's more the case <laughs> in this world system, in the world that we live in, than it is otherwise. They only see Jesus as a threat. And so, rather than embrace the evidence authentically, they say, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel, Jesus, we see the answer that Jesus gives them. Matthew just moves right on because he's content with pointing out their hypocrisy and their unwillingness to deal with the evidence. In the other Gospels, Jesus says, oh, really? Satan is at war with Satan. Does that really make any sense? No. But they're not about the business of making sense. They're about the business of defending their position. And one of the most important pictures in that video that, we, that 
Bob and Tommy brought to us was that it was just up there. Here was this magnificent house that Caiaphas lived in. The beautiful blue mosaics. He was defending his lifestyle. That was everything that they were about. They were about defending their lifestyle, the wealth that they were getting from milking the temple system and their position. They weren't about the business of authentically following God. We just read a few minutes ago this fellow Isaiah. Isaiah was a part of the leadership of Israel. He was a, he was a prominent person from a well-to-do family. And in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw Yahweh himself high and lifted up. He's not in the temple in Jerusalem. He is seeing into the heavenly temple. I saw the Lord, Yahweh himself, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. It covers the floor of the temple. His glory fills the And the seraphim, the burning ones, the seraph is the Hebrew word for fire. These are angels of fire. And they each have three pairs of wings. With two they cover their eyes because they're not worthy of looking upon the holy God. With two they cover their feet because they can't step on the floor because it's covered with the train of his robe. And with two they flew, and they are crying out, and, and in Tiffany, back and forth, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Hold it back and forth and back and forth, and it doesn't stop. And you know what? It, you know why it doesn't get boring? Because it's true. It's true. And when it comes to the glory of God, you don't, is, you know, we're going to be in, in, the, in the eternal reign and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. And you know what? It's never going to get, oh, man, we've sung this song a million times. We're going to be going, yeah. It's never going to get old because you can't ever over-worship our God. I saw the king who just died, Uzziah, the king no i'm seeing the real king centuries before the jewish leadership came to the prophet samuel and said we want a king excuse me you already have a king his name is the lord yahweh he, you already have a king no we want a human king like all the other nations around us and samuel is just number first he takes it personally because of his own, he felt like his failure, and especially that his two sons are just worthless idiots. He didn't do a proper job raising them. And so he goes to God, very, very sorrowful. And God says, no, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so when they got Saul, he wasn't a Samuel replacement, he was a God replacement. Who is the real king of Israel? It wasn't Saul. It was God. God is still the king of Israel. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later in the time of Isaiah, who is the real king of Israel? The Lord. I saw the Lord, the king. 
and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then he, oh, no. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What's he saying? I have given praise that was belonged to God. I've given it to others, perhaps even other gods. And a seraphim takes a burning angel, okay, takes a coal off of the heavenly altar, drops it in the palm of his hand. Hey, I'm a burning angel anyways, right? This is no problem. And he touches the lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. He touches the lips of Isaiah and says, you are cleansed. And then he says, the Lord says to Isaiah, uh, one person in the audience Who will go for me? I have I want to send a spokesman to the people. I wonder who I should who will go for me? Who will volunteer to go for me? <clears throat> I think it's pretty plain <laughs> who God intends to go for him. But Isaiah, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Now, we stopped reading there. If you read the rest of Isaiah 6, he is sent on a very difficult ministry because God says, yes, you will be my spokesman, but they will not listen to you. You will speak and speak and speak. And Isaiah is probably, perhaps aside from the Psalms, the most quoted book from the Old Testament. I mean, Isaiah is so heavy with glorious truth and prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ in particular. Isaiah 53, if you haven't ever read it, go home and read it. Just that alone. But they will not listen to you. They will not listen to you. They will not listen to you. Now, this is not in the Bible, but Jewish history tells us this. Ultimately, what happened to Isaiah is he got stuffed in a hollow log by King Manasseh and was sawn in two. That's how much they did not want to receive his message. Excuse me, God's message through him. Now God calls on us. What does Jesus say here? He said to his Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. So Jesus at this point has a great welcome amongst the Jewish people. He is teaching in their synagogues. And I would dare say every Sabbath those synagogues where Jesus was going to be were packed and the crowd was outside in the streets trying to hear. Teaching in their synagogues and their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist came... As we've cited before, he came in the wilderness dressed in sackcloth. He's wearing animal skins. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He is living the lifestyle of someone who is trying to survive judgment. Jesus comes. He's speaking in the cities, and he's speaking in the synagogue. His, his lifestyle represents kingdom glory. But what John the Baptist lived and what jesus is living is both they're both prophetic because what's next for israel once they reject jesus and he goes to the cross 
Once they have stead, the Jewish people, their leadership, and many of the common people stood before Pilate and said what? Let his blood be on us and on our children. What did they experience 37 years later? That's in 33 A.D., 70 A.D. The Romans came, tore down Jerusalem, crucified about 100,000 100, Jewish people, sold the rest of them into slavery. The value of slaves in the Mediterranean world was depressed, suppressed for several years because they were, there was just a glut of slaves. It was, there were too many on the market. That's the John the Baptist. And in fact, ever since then, it's been the John the Baptist's kingdom experience for Israel. When Jesus comes again, then the glory period will begin. But Jesus is looking out at the crowd. He was moved. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I would invite you to do something. Go over to Walmart, and uh, well, we try. <laughs> this is amazing. This is about what a year and year and a half ago or so. Uh, DJ and I went over to Walmart. We were just standing out there handing out Gospel of John. I mean, within about six minutes, Walmart management came out and kicked us off the property because we were messing with people by giving them Gospels of John. But you can go into Walmart and just sit on one of those uh, husband benches there. They're husband benches because that's where the husbands sit while their wives are shopping, right? But you can just sit there, and what do you do? If you just watch the people walk by, what do you sing? Sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is looking at the multitudes, and he is seeing. He's moved with compassion for them because they are weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a big job to do, but I don't have. Who am I going to send? Now, in the very next paragraph, chapter 10, verse 1 and on, he's going to appoint the 12 apostles. But what did God say, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 700 years before, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's that experience going to be for the harvesters? I can't tell you. For many, 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 many harvesters, it is like Isaiah. But the job isn't what fruit comes to me, but was I loyal to the commission? Did I go when he sought volunteers? Did I go when he sought volunteers? These men, he's got disciples following him. Some of them, they really don't get it. They, you have the fellows that came to Jesus that said to him, hey, we want to follow you. And Jesus said, but and the one fellow said, 
but let me first go home and bury my father. Well, it's not like his father's on a granite slab ready to, no, that's not, that is a, their colloquial expression for, let me finish all of my family obligations first, because they come before you, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury their dead, you just follow me. And then the fellow came to him and said, I'm ready to follow you. And he said, that's fine, but I want you to do it with your eyes wide open. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, each night, it's an issue. Where am I going to lay my head down? Where am I going to lay my head down? Where am I going to lay my head down? Now, every night he had a place to lay his head down, but it's going to be a day-to-day-to-day-to-day issue. And so, yes, I invite you to do it, but do it with your eyes wide open. Every single one of us is on the receiving end of the final message well it's the message here but it's also the final message of Matthew's gospel after his resurrection he's going to say to the disciples immediately before his ascension into heaven all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel and I will be with you even to the end of the age that wasn't just to those 12 men it's to every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus since we're all commissioned to be harvesters and we all need to respond to that what standing does Jesus have to make that kind of a demand on us. We are commemorating that here at the Lord's Supper. What rightfully is my destiny? Left to myself, apart from the mercy of God that was made possible for me by Jesus' work on the cross, rightfully, justly, fairly, my destiny is an eternity in the lake of fire. Mark, that's pretty scary. That's pretty rough, don't you think? Do you want to know the truth? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. That's what justly comes to me if I reject what Jesus did for me on the cross. What did Jesus do for me on the cross? As I've already indicated, while he was on that cross, his Father poured out on him. Between those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. He poured out on him, God the Son, who because of the value of his person, he is true God of true God, true man of true man, joined together in one person. The weight of who he is as a person is greater than the weight of the entire human race. And so in, in the eternal eternality of his nature, he could take an eternal consequence, that we, a consequence we would spend an eternity paying, he can pay it in a, in a period of time because of the nature of his person. So he paid the lake of fire penalty for us. And he said, it is finished, it's paid in full. Now I can say, thanks Jesus, but no thanks. 
I'll take justice. I think I will do okay with justice. No, bad decision. Justice is the lake of fire. Well, I don't think I'm that bad. Oh, yes, through holy eyes, yes, you are. So am I. So am I. So am I. But he delivers us from it, and we need to take that message to other people because it is just as eternally important for them to know it as us. Before we come to the Lord's table, I'm just going to stop for a moment. I don't, you know what? I'm just a human being. I'm not God. Hope that's not a shock to you. <laughs> I don't know the internal reality of everyone here. I would dare say, for example, Nicodemus, that fellow who came to Jesus in John 3, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, he's a Pharisee, Jesus himself calls him the rabbi of Israel. He's got every religious credential, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you must be born from above. He didn't have it all. He didn't have it all. I can't see into your heart. You may have been in this church for years. I don't know the reality. It's shocking to me that after three and a half years when Jesus said to the 12, one of you will betray me, nobody said, well, it's got to be that guy, Judas. And I would dare say they were all shocked when Judas got up and walked out. So let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that what the Bible says about you is true. That you did all of those miracles and demonstrated the reality of who you are and then in all of your holiness in all of your proven holiness you took my place as the lamb the substitutionary sacrifice for me you went to a cross and you were nailed to that wooden altar and you were the lamb who took away the guilt of my sin because you paid the penalty that I rightly owed. You paid that penalty. I want to simply, with an open, empty hand, accept that benefit right now. I want to, if I want to completely settle that issue and accept it right now, and I'm going to write this date and time 11.53, Sunday morning, January the 14th, 2018, in my Bible, as the day, the moment, I welcomed your complete forgiveness and cleansing and a welcome with you, a glad welcome with you. And so now as I come to the Lord's table, as I take this bread, this unleavened bread, symbolizing your broken, your sinless perfection that was broken to benefit me,
as I take this cup, which represents the effectiveness of your blood, the effectiveness of your sacrifice to pay sin's penalty for me. It will be an authentic testimony to the welcome I've made in my life to what you've done to benefit me, to bring me into your kingdom with gladness. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.